1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've been in 1 Thessalonians. This is sermon number 5, week number 5. We've been in this study together. We're on the fifth verse. <laughs> and so in four weeks, we've done four verses. I'm just kind of aware of that here. Uh, today, we're going to cover a little ground, though. I think, Lord willing, today we'll be able to finish chapter 1. Last week, we looked at a very controversial doctrine in verse 4. We saw how, how we are the choice of God, and we talked about the doctrine of election. And last week, we saw what is then that doctrine of election. It was more of a, a doctrinal kind of sermon, a doctrinal kind of teaching, so that it would lay the groundwork for the rest of this chapter and the rest of this book. The doctrine of election is controversial, as I said. There are some who believe it. There are some who do not believe it. There are some who have mixed ideals and feelings and even beliefs about it. But it is a doctrine that the Scriptures proclaim. And we saw a few things. We saw that election is of God. We saw that there in verse 4. But also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. We saw that election is of God. We saw that election is from eternity. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And then we saw that election is God's sovereign prerogative. And we looked at a passage in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 24, but we really just focused on those first two verses, verse 15 and verse 16, that God chooses whom he decides to choose. And it's all of his prerogative. If our choice was equally weighed against God's choice, that would make us equal God. And by definition, there's only one God. There can't be multiple gods. There can't be a pantheon of gods. The very ideal, the very notion of God demands sovereignty. Amen? And so there is a being who is God, and He has the right to rule and reign and do as He pleases. And so we saw all of those things, and I, I know there's much mystery and there's, there's probably still some, some doubt for some folks about what election is and is not. But hopefully today, we'll see that election is very real and we'll see the proof or the evidence of election today. And I know this mystery exists concerning it. And all we have of, uh, regarding election is what the Scriptures give us. But how God chooses us precisely in eternity, past of Himself, alone, before any of us are born, before we're created, what humanity's role is in saying yes and responding affirmatively to God's call, all of those things, yes, there is some element of mystery therein. God saves us, and yet we have to respond in order to be saved. And so God's sovereign choosing and our responsibility, all those things are, are, are wed together somewhere in God's economy and somewhere in eternity, somewhere. Amen? And so uh, without getting too far off, I guess, into those things, we know that our belief and our faith is necessary. And yet, we know that our belief and our faith and our response to God is also by the gifting and the grace and the mercy of God. We can't even say yes to God if He doesn't begin something in us. But all of this, as we try to figure out exactly and precisely how it all plays out together, all of the mystery surrounding it, it is, yes, detailed for us in the pages of Scripture, but election always leads, and this ideal of election always leads to another question. And that's the question we're going to answer today in the remainder of chapter 1. The question is, then how can anyone know the elect of God? Or how can we know who the elect of God are? 
And so, I think today as we start at verse 4 again, and we make our way, Lord willing, through the remainder of this chapter, I think we'll see as the Apostle Paul lays out his thankfulness in this chapter for, for everything that God has done and what he's evidencing, what he's seeing proof of in the lives of these Thessalonian Christians, I think we'll see, therefore, the evidences of the elect, how anyone can know who the elect of God are. So look with me, if you will, at verse 4. Let's start there. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. And that's what we looked at last week. So knowing God's choice of you, that's, that's it. That's this ideal of election. And so as we continue this chapter, we're going to see the evidences. So let's look at verse 5 now. Let's see how this all plays together. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your own sake. You also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report to us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And we wait, or rather, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So what I'd like to do in the rest of our time together is look at, at the rest of these verses, verses 5 through 10 here, and I want us to see three big things, three big ideas, the first of which is an evidence that we see the way in which the gospel had come to these people. We can know the elect of God in the way in which the gospel comes to the recipients. And here, the way in which the gospel had come to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians. Verse 5 again. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So there's a few things here we see even in this first verse that we're going to look at today, the way in which the gospel had come to them. And so if you look at this next slide here on the screen, we'll give them all to you here. It came by way of the word. It came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. And it came with full conviction. That's what Paul says in verse 5. So the way in which the gospel goes forth is very telling and it's an evidence of who the elect of God are. Let's talk about that for a minute. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it did come in word. It came in word. It's the word of God. And we're going to come back to that ideal in just a moment. But it's the word of God that has the power of God unto the salvation of those who believe. No one is saved just by looking at the good life or the good works of another person. That helps, absolutely, but it's the Word of God that's been ordained by God to be the agent of change and saving. Amen? That's what the Scriptures teach us throughout. It's God's Word, and we're going to prove that in just a moment. But it came by the Word. It also came in power and in the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is that change agent. And it's not my arguments. 
And let me just even just kind of advertise, I guess, maybe what we did yesterday. I guess you should advertise things before they happen, but uh, I'll just uh, give a, a testimony maybe about what happened yesterday. So Friday and Saturday we went. We took, uh, there was 13 of us who took some of the teenagers in the church uh, to, uh, where did we go? Allen, McKinney, Texas. And we went up, that's uh, just north of Dallas, and uh, we went to the Rethink Conference. It's a ministry from, the, the, there's an organization called Stand to Reason, it's a ministry of a man by the name of Greg Kokel. There are some other gentlemen who, uh, and, and ladies as well who uh, are part of that ministry. But Stand to Reason, their, their reason for existing is to help Christians understand how to defend what they believe. To help Christians have a, a ready defense, an apologetic. That's what the word apologia means uh, in, in Greek. It doesn't mean to, to apologize for being a Christian. It means to have a defense, a ready defense, to give good sound arguments of why you believe in Jesus Christ and the Bible and the things of God. And so we were able to gather in Dallas, or north of Dallas, in Allen, uh, with about 2,000, is that right? About 2,000 other young people. High school, mostly college age, and some adults as well and some in junior high also. But from junior high to adults, there was over 2,000 people gathered together learning how to give a ready defense about the gospel. I think that's good news, folks. I think that's excellent news. But as we learn how to use philosophy, and as we learn how to, to make arguments for Scripture, for the belief, the existence of God, we come with this pre um, pre presumption, this, this assumption beforehand, a preconceived notion, if you will, that it's not our arguments that win the debates. It's not our arguments that win the arguments with atheists or with agnostics or with Muslims or any of those things. All we do is facilitate the unleashing of God's Word. Amen? It's not my argument that persuades people in a vacuum, in a, in a, in a nutshell isolated from the Scripture. It's the Scripture, it's the Word of God whereby the power comes from by way of His Holy Spirit. So it's God's Word by the Holy Spirit that has the power. So this sentence all goes together. These, these three, A, B, and C, it all is one kind of unit here. I'm just helping us to piece it together. The Word of God. So it comes, the Gospel comes by Word and in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, some people read into this that power is some separate thing and, and it's evidenced by, by being slain in the Spirit or speaking in tongues or, or some notion like that. And that is not what's in view here. The power is of God. It's not, it has nothing to do with any response or illustration or demonstration. It's God's Word and God's Holy Spirit that is the power. Does that make sense? That's what it is. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So the gospel comes, and we know who the elect of God are. That's his argument that he's making. This is why he's so thankful, because he's able to see the evidence that these Thessalonian Christians are the elect of God, because the Word of God came to them from the Spirit of God in power. And then... He adds this last little element, element D. It came with full conviction. It literally means with full measure or, or assurance. And so, how many of you have had full assurance and full measure and full conviction when you sat down in your chair today? Probably all of you. I mean, you're sitting in it, right? There's a few of you standing in the back, so maybe you don't have it. But every one of us who put our bodies in these seats 
demonstrated what we're saying. You demonstrated a full conviction, a full measure of assurance that that chair was going to hold you up and not buckle from poor design, from a defect, or from just the sheer weight of our mass or whatever it might be, right? But we had full conviction and measure and assurance that that chair would hold us. Maybe that's a bad illustration. I don't know. Some of you are going, what do you mean our weight? But it held you up. Full, of, full conviction, full measure. And that's what he's saying. The word came, or, or, or the gospel came by way of the word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, with a full measure of conviction. And so what Paul is doing is, is just echoing what we see elsewhere in Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, verse 11, God's word says this. So, and this is God speaking, he says, So will my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. What Isaiah the prophet was saying is that God's word with the Holy Spirit, there's, he has this full measure of assuring conviction that God's word will do exactly what the Spirit of God wants it to do. Do we believe that today? Oftentimes, we, we believe the word in here, and then as soon as someone challenges us out there, we scratch our head, and all of a sudden, the, the, the rug's been pulled out from under our assurance and our conviction. But we, like the Apostle Paul, what he saw demonstrated in these early Christians, and remember, he was only able to really teach them, publicly at least, for three weeks or maybe just over. He could have been with him a little bit longer, sure, but, but the public ministry of the Word went out in this region of Thessalonica for just three Sabbaths, just three weeks, roughly. And so already, as Paul is away, as he's writing this letter back with, with Timothy reporting to him what, what was going on, and we're going to see more about that report here in just a few verses, but as Paul is hearing about what God's Word had done in these people, he realizes that they are truly the elect of God. The gospel came to them in the, by the word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Their response wasn't just emotional. Their response wasn't just to get excited while Paul was preaching and making some great points, and then when he left, it died off. There was more than just an emotional engagement it sank roots down into who they were. It sank roots into their, the very core of their being. So the Word, the power, the Holy Spirit with full conviction, and now the evidence of that election being seen in the proclamation of the Word. Our gospel did not come in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, as you yourselves know what kind of men we prove to be among you. And the result of that gospel hearing, that gospel telling, and that gospel reception, the result was that it changed the lives of people. That's what the gospel does. The evidence of election is a changed life, simply put. Amen? And there's this unmistakable recognition that the Spirit of God was working in the hearts, not just of Paul or of Silas or of Timothy, but that God's Spirit was working in the hearts of these new believers in Thessalonia as well. The message was confirmed by the character of the messenger, but also by the change in the recipients of the message. John MacArthur, quote, he says this about this passage. He says, The quality of the message was confirmed by the character of the lives of the preachers. 
Paul's exemplary life served as an open book for all men to read, establishing the credibility of the power and grace of God essential to making the message of redemption believable to sinners. The messenger's life doesn't save anyone in a vacuum in and of itself. But the messenger's life gives credence to the message of the gospel that's being proclaimed on the lips of the messenger. Amen? Do we believe that? That's why it's so important that we don't just say things about God and about the Bible and about Jesus without making sure that we are having this full conviction, this full measure of assurance, so that our life actually lines up with it. And for a Christian, that means when we stumble because we stumble. I shared with you one of my uh, recent blunders in public. I allowed myself to become sinfully angry with someone visibly in Kroger. I broke a ship. No, I didn't. I'm just playing. It wasn't that bad. I didn't hulk out on anybody, but I was, I was, I was physically angry and, and lost my temper. That's sin. To lose your temper is sin, and I did. I did. But God's Holy Spirit in me convicted me of that sin. And even in that very moment, it was God's Spirit. I take no credit. All I take is the blame. Had no credit for the turnaround. But I was able, because God's Spirit in me, Christ in me, the hope of glory in me, the same Christ that's in every Christian, was able to give me a little spanking. Even in that moment, Kevin, you lost your temper. You're sinning. You're witnessing poorly for my word. And so I was able to stop, take a breath in my mind, and then apologize to this person that I had just become angry with. And I don't say that to boast. I say that to my shame. But a good messenger should be able to tell you their shortcomings. A good messenger should be an example, not just of being perfect, because I promise you I'm not. Mike? Amen. Amen. See, there you go. I am not perfect. But folks, God's Word is. God is Himself perfect, and His power in us is changing us from glory to glory, making us more perfect. And so my life had better line up with what I'm saying. If I'm telling you it's a sin to be angry, and then I don't ever repent when I get angry, I'm a hypocrite. And I'm not worthy to preach this gospel. Amen? Yes, we have sin in our lives. And yes, Christian, we repent and turn from that sin. And also, Christian, there should be evidence of our repentance. There should be change. There should be change. So, why, why, Pastor Kevin, why, why are you repenting to us again? Why are you, why are you telling us this again? I, was, I, I, want you to, I want you to learn even from my mistakes. I do. I don't want you to, to, to make the same mistakes I do. Parents, how many of you know that to be true? Why do we harp on our kids about all the sinful things that we did? Because we don't want our kids to do what? Yeah. And, and we have to remember, though. Now, here, here's the part for us to remember, okay? Because as a parent who used to be a kid, that's all of us, all right? Unless you were born an adult. How weird is that? And some of you I wonder about, though. Hang on. Uh, okay, anyway. So, so what we have to remember is that when we were kids hearing our parents tell us these things, I don't want you to learn from my mistakes. What was always our argument? Do you remember? I, I'm not, yes, that's, that's usually one. I'm not you. And, and, and I want to have the opportunity to learn from my mistakes too. That was such a horrible argument that I, I made. My parents never, never fell for that either, I don't think. But it, it, anyway, the, the, the point is that the gospel changes lives. And it should change us. And when we, when we sin, when we make mistakes, when we fail, what should we do, Christian? Repent. Get back up. 
Get back up. Keep going. Demonstrate a life of change. So the gospel came to these Thessalonians. Were they perfect already? Were they all behaving just perfectly, you think, after, after a month or two? Probably not. How many of us are behaving perfectly all the time? It's not a license to sin. Shane, it's not an excuse. For instance, Kevin, it's not an excuse. It's not. But we should be evidencing Change lives. So God's saving, electing power had clearly been manifested in these people's lives in this town, in this region of Thessalonica, as the message was received. Secondly, the gospel came to them. And then secondly, the word was received by them. And folks, let me just tell you, this is the same way it happens today. This is the same way people are saved today because God has prescribed it to be so. The word goes out, it comes to us, and then we receive the word. Verse 6, Paul says this, he says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and uh, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So, so they were imitators of, of Paul and Silas and Timothy and of the Lord, having received the word in tribulation with joy in the Holy Spirit. So a few things here. Firstly, they became imitators of Paul, Timothy, Silas, and the Lord. Are, are we worthy of imitating. We should be. Amen. Not so that we can pat ourselves on the back. And certainly not so we can tell everyone. Hey look at me. But our lives should be such an example. That people can look to us. And see past us to the Lord. Amen. So the gospel comes to them. The gospel is received by them such a way that they now were imitating Paul and Timothy and Silas and ultimately imitating the Lord. Had these Thessalonian Christians, new Christians now, had these in Thessalonia, had they seen the resurrected Lord? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know from reading our text. We don't know how many of them were present at the crucifixion. Now, it's been some, uh, at this point, some 20, 24 years, roughly, since the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But chances are, most of these people had never seen Jesus literally. So how could they model and imitate Jesus? Because they saw it in Paul. They saw it in Timothy. They saw it in Silas. And folks, we should also imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that people can model Jesus as well. Now, I don't mean that we should um, wear a robe necessarily, okay? I don't mean we have to wear sandals, all right, those Jesus sandals. How many of you are wearing sandals today? All right, amen. All right, one of you. All right, one of you are following Jesus today. But we're to imitate the character of Jesus. We're to be holy as Jesus was holy. We're to live in such a way that our lives would model what it means to be a Christ follower. Secondly, they receive the word, it says, in much tribulation. So they're modeling, they're imitating the life of Paul, of Silas, of Timothy, of the Lord ultimately. And they're doing so even in the face of tribulation, persecution. We saw that from the very first week in, in the, uh, the first sermon in this series. The second sermon in this series, we hit on it a little bit as well. 
Trouble had already begun to be stirred up because of the message of the gospel, such that the Jews and others were running Paul and, and those guys out of town. No doubt there's still trouble in Thessalonia at this time as he's writing back to them, because as he makes his way through this, this letter, this epistle, we're going to see that he's encouraging them more in the face of persecution. There's going to be more aspects to this that get played out further into the letter. But they received the Word of God not just on bright, sunny, happy days when everything was going fine. They received the Word of God in the midst of trouble, of tribulation. And yet their faith is secure. They received it not only in um, the midst of trouble, but thirdly, we see in verse 6 there, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So it's really this exuberant joy, this great joy in the Spirit. And so what we're seeing again is just more details of the fact that they hear the Word. The Word comes to them. The Gospel comes to them. They receive the Gospel. And, and, and ultimately, they receive it in such a way that their life demonstrated that they had received it. So what's an evidence for the electing power of God's work in someone's life? The gospel goes to them. The gospel's received by them. When the gospel's received, guess what? God's electing work has just been demonstrated. Amen? That's what this text is helping us to see. Now, now think about this for a second. Preaching the word is one thing, someone said. Receiving the word is quite another. On the way home, Brandon and PJ and I, Corbin had fallen asleep uh, uh, with earplugs in his, in, I guess he was tired of listening to us, but, but PJ and I for sure in the front seat were talking about uh, scripture and different things uh, about ministry and preaching and teaching. And, and, and I was reminded during that conversation that, that there was this great preacher who had tremendous messages from the Lord, and yet no one ever got saved under his ministry. Who was it? Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament. That's right. In fact, in Jeremiah 1.4, you start reading how it says that God, God appointed him to be a prophet unto the nations before he was ever born. God had a plan and a purpose and, and, and a goal for his life that he would proclaim God's word to the people. That would be his calling in life, his ministry. And, and, and if God was telling me that, I'm thinking, praise the Lord, that sounds great. I would love to be able to get just to make a living preaching. Wait, I do make a living preaching your word. That's a good thing. I'm getting to do it. But Jeremiah had no fruit visible from his ministry. No one repented and heeded his word. Think about how discouraging that would be to preach week in and week out and look at the same tired faces who, oh, sorry, look, look, you preach the same word week in and week out and you look out and people are still scratching their head and, and, and looking at their watch. It, not you guys, I'm just giving you some examples here from, from other places, obviously. But they're, they're rubbing their stomach. And I can remember in the past one time preaching, and y'all know I go kind of long. Um, I figured there'd be an amen right there. I was pausing for dramatic effect. All right, Mr. Marlin agrees, amen, All right, amen. I saw it, I saw it. But I remember one time preaching, not here, and I promise this was not here, in another congregation years and years ago, someone actually stood up in the back and did like this and then pointed at the clock. His name's Charlie Birch. No, no, it's not. This is another church. And he pointed at the clock. He was done listening, and I had better catch up to him. All right, I better catch up. And so I did the best I could. I was, it was young. I mean, it only been, I think, like 95 minutes. I mean, it wasn't that long for someone who's really in love with Jesus, right? 
It wasn't that long. I promise you it wasn't that long. Not then. It could be now. And it's going to be if I don't get back onto this. So let's, let's keep moving. But, but preaching the Word is one thing. It is. To proclaim the Word. There's, there's power in the Word that comes out. But it's not, listen, it doesn't stop where the proclamation of the gospel goes out. More is involved. And so it's the receiving of the word also. And God has a hand in that as well. That's what we see here. That's what Paul's so thankful for, that he's demonstrating the proof of God's electing of this people because the word went out, they received the word, and the result was their lives changed. The result was their lives changed. That's the same word that we get from Paul in the book of Romans. So look at Romans 10, starting at verse 13. This is a familiar passage. Almost every Sunday morning, we'll end somewhere around this text. Romans 9 verses, uh, excuse me, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. And then we usually go to about verse 14 here. But notice what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Rome. He says, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord might be saved. Isn't that what it says? No. Oh, I'm sorry. What does it say? Will be. will be saved. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is, is, excuse me, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things or good tidings. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You see that? It's the same thing Paul's telling them in, 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 in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. The gospel goes out. So it's the way in which the gospel came out and came to them, and it's the way in which the gospel was received. The gospel had to be preached, it had to be proclaimed, it had to be heard, it had to be taken hold of. Amen? That's what we see here. And so here's the third point. We're on the third point this morning. We see the evidence of election in the way in which, the salvation, the, which their salvation then was manifested in their lives and in their testimony. So the gospel goes out, the gospel's received, and the gospel changes lives. That's it. We've been saying it from the, the whole time, from the very beginning. The gospel goes out, it's received, and now there's a change in the life of those who receive it. So a couple things here. First we see, they became examples of what believers should be to other churches and to other believers elsewhere. Look at verse 7. That's what he says. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The gospel went out to the Thessalonians. The gospel was received by the Thessalonians. Their lives were changed to such an extent that they were now examples they had modeled their life after Paul or Timothy or Silas, ultimately after the Lord and His teaching, and now they were making an impact around the country, around the region. Macedonia, Achaia, they, they were now being examples. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The word example is the Greek word um, tupos, 
And it's basically where we get the word type, a type from. So a casting of a pattern, thus an example. And so what he's saying is that you were molded after the pattern of Paul and Timothy and Silas who were ultimately molded after the pattern of Christ and now you're being that pattern to someone else. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what it's always been about. And we make it, and I don't know why, we make it about so many other things, don't we? Wrongly. Secondly, they became faithful in the proclamation of the word. Verse 8 tells us. They became faithful to the proclamation of the word. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone. Friends, that's convicting. Because I read that again and I'm reminded of Kroger's. I am. It just, it just breaks my heart. But can it be said of us that the Word of God goes out everywhere we go? That the testimony goes out? Our example goes out well? As the Word of God is sounded forth wherever we go? Does that convict anyone else here today? That should be true of us, Amen. That should be true of us. So they were faithful in the proclamation of the Word of God. Another thing, they had a testimony of great faith throughout the region. That should be true of us. And here's the evidence in verse 9. It says, For they themselves report about us, report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Their lives changed. Simply stated, they left idolatry and they began to worship the true God. And I know we just talked about this this past week also, but I don't think any of you here go into your private chambers and bow down in front of any bronze or silver or even um, um, you know, any, any type of graven image. I don't believe that, that any of you here would do such things. And yet, whatever we give the most attention most time, the most of our resources and efforts to, that very thing or that person is an idol to us. Amen? It can be a sport. It can be a job. It can. It can be a spouse. It can be a child. And that's typically what we see today. We've elevated our children to a rightful place of our spouse. In so many households, it's wrong. Husband and wife are one. Our kids were to raise up. We should aim for that model. Never put our kids on the pedestal where they get to make all the decisions for us. Amen, parents? Amen, kids? Not one. All right, there's one. All right. All right, amen. That's the way God ordained it to be. It's the way it should be. We should be examples. We should leave our idolatry. For some of us, it might be our music. We've got to have music in our ears and our head. We've got our phones with us constantly. Oh, for some of us, it might be our phones. But they left anything that took their passion away from God so that they could be gods and be wholly consumed by God, for God, living a life pleasing to God. They turned away from idols to serve a true and living God. Notice something in that verse, in verse 9, the last part. How you turn, what's it say? 
to God from idols. Notice that the Scriptures do not teach that we turn from sin to God. It's always differently worded. It's always like this. We turn to God from our sin. We turn to God from our idols. You know why it's worded that way? Because in my power and in your power, I cannot be good enough to stop my sin and be holy. I have to turn to God first so that I can therefore be empowered by God to say no to the lust of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life to put off my sin. God does that. So I turn to God from idols. It's not the other way around. It cannot be. The word turn there, if you want to be a little more intent about it, the word turn in the Greek is what's known as an aorist tense. And I think this is very important. And I think this speaks out against a lot of the false teachings today about losing salvation. The word turned here, being in the aorist tense in the language in which it was given to us, it means a once and for all turning, a single one-time act. We turn from our sin, period. We turn, or excuse me, we turn to God, period, turning from our sin. It's one singular thing. Now, obviously, Christians, we repent throughout our lives. But there's once and for all a time when we come into saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see here. You turned, period. Your old self is gone and buried. Your new self has come. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's the same ideas that Paul is bringing back here. So, the last thing, look at verse 10. Another evidence here, in, in fact, of how their life changed. Notice what changed about their life. No longer were they worried about a sporting event, primarily, a music recital or a, or a concert. No longer were they worried about the promotion, primarily. Not that, not that any of those things are necessarily evil in and of themselves. I'm not saying that. But their focus was no longer on temporal things. Notice what their focus is on now, verse 10. So you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We are now in Christ, eagerly waiting the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Is that true of us this morning? Are you longing for the return of Christ? My, my, my dear brother Ralph and I, Mr. Ralph, Mr. Ewing, were talking this morning in the lobby about, about great godly things, politics, okay? And uh, we were just talking, and, and, and if, if, if I may, Mr. Ralph shared with me, he said he's never seen the political climate as bad as it is today. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but is that accurate, sir? He's never seen the political climate as bad as it is today. And I agree wholeheartedly. I've never seen it. I, I haven't lived... Quite as long as Mr. Ewing. He's got me by just a couple, two or three years, right? But I've never seen the world in such upheaval in all of my life either. Okay? And this never has. But here, here's, here's what I always have to go back to. Here's what I always have to go back to. This is what makes me sane. No, this is what keeps me sane on the track of sanity. Ready? This world is not my home, ultimately. Yeah. This kingdom 
Yes, it's our local government. And we're going to talk in the weeks ahead, uh, Wednesday night, Sunday night, about a Christian's right, biblical response to politics and government and, and, and all the ills of society. We're going to talk in, in very practical ways how we're to engage and live out our faith in society. We are. We're going to do that. But folks, listen. My ultimate home and your ultimate home as a Christian is Christ and the presence of Christ, the glory of Christ in a new heaven and a new earth that will be here one day. So my citizenship is in heaven with Christ right now. And as bad as things are, and as much as we fight and, and preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel and share the good news, as much as we do all those things and warn about the, the ills of socialism, that's all good and we should do that. Ask Mr. Ralph for some more of his writings. He's got great insights into the predicaments we find ourselves in today. You ought to ask for a copy of some of the things he's written. But, but all of that's good and fine as long as Christian, we... And I'm talking about me too. We keep our eyes on the prize. Amen? This world is going to burn. That's a positive, encouraging message for you, right? You can hear that on Caleb. But it is. You won't hear that on Caleb. I'm sorry. Um, I went into my Caleb kind of commercial, all right? Positive and encouraging. Um, but folks, the Bible tells us that this world is going to come to an end. All the things that we glory in here will be burned up and done away with. And it will be remade. And it's going to be great and glorious and splendid. That's why Paul commends these Thessalonians. What are they doing? They're not just squabbling over their conditions. I'm not saying they weren't working to change their conditions. I'm not saying that. But they weren't, they weren't being depressed because of it. They weren't being held back and held down. They weren't becoming bitter because of it. They were looking to Jesus, awaiting Jesus Christ from heaven. What a tremendous thought. Guys, follow this corny example with me. Actually, it's not corny, but follow this, this beautiful example. Do you remember, how many of you guys are married or have been married? Okay. Do you remember when you're standing at the altar or in front of the JP, whatever it might have been, but you're standing there. The altar works better for this illustration, but, but you're standing there. And maybe the pastor's beside you on one side and the, the, your, your best man, your, the best dude's right there on the other side. And, and maybe the other dudes are lined up too. I, I don't remember that part. All I remember is as I'm standing there, and this was at First Baptist Church in Deweyville, Texas. Beautiful downtown Deweyville. And uh, I don't even know if there's a red light in Deweyville. But anyway, we're at First Baptist Deweyville. And I remember as I'm standing there, nervous as all get out. Anybody remember that? Right, sweating. I mean, just you could just wring out my hands to sweat. Uh, I'm sure I had. You ready? Let's be graphic. This is in Christ. You ready? Had sweat rings under my arms all the way down to my ankles. I mean, just the nerves and the excitement. A few of y'all caught that, okay? But just the excitement, the anticipation to see those doors open and to see that foxy mama back there, Becky, coming. That's my wife. I'm just making sure everybody else knows. That's my wife. So, but to see those doors open, the anticipation as my wife comes through dressed in white, man, tears streaming down my face, probably stuff streaming from my nose, I don't remember, but I didn't care, I didn't care to look at her and to see her smiling back, looking at me. Man, I remember just, you know, I keep coming back to Sydney and Tyler's wedding because Tyler's face made such an impact on me too, you know. And Craig, not too long ago, I mean, just seeing these others. But man, Tyler, when Sydney came around that corner, I mean, Tyler was just like, 
instantly red-faced and tears. I just, I just remember this look on these different men's face when they saw their bride. Wow, it's just moving. And I'm a guy, and I'm supposed to be manly. Y'all know I'm not, but I'm supposed to be. But, but I'm going to tell you, that's moving, and that's powerful to see that. And ladies, listen, if, if your guy didn't cry and get emotional like me and Tyler and, and uh, Craig, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. But that eager anticipation to see her face, I still remember that. I don't always echo that to her right now the way I should. But I'm, I'm so aware right now that we are to eagerly await the return of Jesus Christ for us. Do we look and anticipate His coming? Are we so distracted by technology and by work and by fun and, and whatever it might be? We're chasing all these things that are lifeless. And the author and creator of our very soul it's coming soon. Man, if we, if we remember what it's like to have that kind of anticipation, if we remember what it's like, as, as David said in Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 42, as, as the deer pants for streams of water, as he just, I mean, just longing for a drink in that stream, so my soul longs for you, O God. When you and I remember and turn our eyes on Jesus, Man, what a change that's going to be. And people will know that we are the elect of God. The Word of God has gone forth. The Word's received. And it changes lives. Has it changed your life today? Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're finding yourself under a bit of conviction this morning. Because you realize that every moment of every day is not captivated by our maker. And it's supposed to be, folks. It's supposed to be. Amen? We were made for so much more than the things that drag us down here. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And just ask. It's not about our spouse or our kids or our neighbor right now. It's about you. This is about me. Where's my heart this morning? Is my heart captivated by God? Am I longing, awaiting, feverishly for the return of my Savior, my God, my Lord, Jesus Christ? Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness and after Him? And if I can't say honestly, that's perfect description of me. And I need to repent right now. Do you? If God's Holy Spirit is using God's Word today to convict you of that very fact, would you repent that? Repent of that today? Confess that to God? Would you cry out to God, Oh God, forgive me this morning. And you may be here this morning and and you're being convicted of something else. You're being convicted of the fact that, that you are not a Christian. That you've never 
never longed after God. You've never come to a place where you realize that you are sinful and that God was holy and he demands perfection and you never come to that place until maybe just this moment where you realize that you have to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to confess him as Lord, turning from your sin because you're turning to God. Is that your heart's calling? Is that your heart's desire today? Is the Lord calling you to himself to be saved? If so, would you call out to God? Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And that's really as much as the Bible instructs us of how to do. The proof of the electing, as we've said today, is in now how you live your life. And one of the earliest outward visibly demonstrative change that someone has now come to Christ in saving faith is that they make that proclamation public. The Bible says that that is what we call baptism. Baptism is that public declaration of what God's Spirit has done in us by calling us to Himself. So if you are a new creation in Christ Jesus today, would you grab me or someone around you even after? Y'all come and, and let's talk about when you can be obedient to be baptized and to make that declaration known. I belong to Jesus. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone and behold, new things are come. New things are true of me. I am new in Christ Jesus. What a glorious, glorious thought that is. And so now, God, I just pray that we, as your body, would live in such a way that this gospel demonstrably is shown to have come out, come to us, and now it's changed our lives, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.